we're going to be looking at 1 Kings chapters 5 through 9. And the big thing that's happening in these particular chapters is the building of the temple. Uh, So what I want to do here is I want to pick what would be the most arduous part to read out of chapters 5 through 9 and read them right now. So, uh, and there's a reason, there's a reason. So I'm not going to ask you to stand. I want you to sit during this because it is lengthy. Um, and that's just in case standing for a long time is, is difficult for you. If you'd like, if you'd like to stand during it, that's fine. But what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to start at chapter six, verse two, and I'm going to read down to verse 10. And then I'm going to pick up again at verse 14 and go to 36. So it's lengthy. Uh, and this is uh, what I'm reading here are the details, the details of what the, the outside, the exterior and the interior and the furnishings look like inside the temple. I, we'll talk about in a little bit why I would choose to read that. There's a lot over chapters five through nine that I'm going to talk about. Uh, but I want to read that particular part just to let us get a full understanding of what the temple is to be uh, built like. And really it's the construction plan. So uh, if you want to stand with me, you can. Uh, If you want to remain seated during this entire time, that's fine. After I finish, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. You'll say thanks be to God because he's been so kind to give us his word and that he would use his word this morning to lead us into a knowledge of him and a deep affection for him. And then I'll pray. So starting in chapter six, verse two. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits. Just so you know, cubit uh, for them is a, is a distance from your elbow to your fingertips. Uh, that's the way they measured genius. You know, just it's about one, you know, two, and it's about 18 inches. But nevertheless, uh, ultimately, we're going to see this in a second, but ultimately it's about just the building itself is about 30 yards by 10 yards. So um, here we are. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long. Uh, 20 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the wall of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. He made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad. The middle one was six cubits broad, and the third was seven cubits broad. All around the house, for around the outside of the house, he made offsets of the wall that the supporting beams could be inserted, uh, could be not inserted into the walls of the house. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer or axe or tool of any iron was heard in the house while it was being built. The entrance for the lowest story was on the south side of the house and one went up the stairs to the middle story from the middle story to the third. So he built the house and finished it, and he made, it a, made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks and cedar. He built the structure against the whole house, five cubits high, and was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. Verse 14. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house from the inside with boards of cedar. From this, no, so we're in the interior. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling. He covered them on the inside with, with wood, and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floors to the walls. And he built with this within as an inner sanctuary as the whole, most holy place. The house that is the nave in front of the inner sanctuary was 40 cubits long. The cedar within the house was carved into the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar. No stone was seen. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the inmost part of the house to set there 
the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. He overlaid it with pure gold. It was overlaid an, al- an altar of cedar. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. He overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also, the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. The inner sanctuary, he made two cherubims of olive wood, each 10 cubits. That's enormous, by the way. High. Five cubits was the length of the wingspan of the cherub, and five cubits was the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was, also, it was 10 cubits from the tip of one wing to the other tip. The other cherub also measured 10 cubits, both cherubim and the and had the same measure and the same form. The height of one cherub was 10 cubits than that of the other cherub. He put cherub in the innermost part of the house and the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that the wing, one touched one wall and the other wing touched the other wall. Their other wings touched each other in the middle of the house and he overlaid the cherub with gold. All around the walls of the house, he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and the outer rooms. The floor of the house, he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer rooms. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and doorposts were five-sided. He covered the, door, the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherub, cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So also he made for the entrance of the nave doorposts of olive wood in the form of a square and two doorposts of cypress wood. The two leaves of the one door were folding and the two leaves of the other door were folding. On them he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers and he overlaid them with gold evenly applied to the carved work. He built the inner court with three courses of cut stone and one course of cedar beams. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for all of these chapters detailing for us um, the man who was to build this great temple, the the details of the construction plan, uh, the prayers that were prayed, and then, of course, as you come at the end, um, the word that you give to Solomon in chapter 9. Um, and all of this is, is uh, showing us just how important it was for the people of God to have this temple. And so I pray that as we look uh, into this scripture this morning, that as we talk about, in essence, a building that was built 3,000 years ago, um, As we look at it, we'll understand. You'll give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Fill us with the Holy Spirit to see and know and understand how this building 3,000 years ago directly relates to our lives right now and how it can fill us with deep affections for Christ. Do all of that this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I know as we're reading through that, as we're reading through the details of Uh, what the outer construction plans and the inner construction plans look like. It kind of feels like riding through road work on Cherry Road. Uh, You endure it for the couple miles because you think that as you get through it, beyond it must be a whole lot better. So I just need to endure it. And let me try to take a step back And because you're with me. You're like, well, all the Bible is God's word, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So this is God's word. It's like reading the chronology. I know it's there and I know it's for my benefit. But really, I just kind of speed read through it to get to the good part. And I just want to stop and help you help us all see that it's actually the good part. It is the good part. Now, there's good parts all around it as well. 
But the details of the construction project is actually the good part. God is going to great pains for his people to know what the, the inner parts of this entire temple would look like. None of them would ever get to go. So this is an audio kind of 360 for them to be able to know what it's even like in there. Because they'll never step a foot in there, likely, most of them. Um, one will get to go in there once per year. But nevertheless, uh, it is the good part. And he wants them to understand what it looks like. Because there's one big thing that he wants them to understand. Which is the holiness of God. All of this is there for us to understand just how holy God is. And so I want you to stop uh, and enjoy the road work as you go through it today. Um, and the road work, of course, being um, better yet, the temple construction, the, the details of this. So my goal as we go through chapters 5 through 9 today, as we read all of this, as we understand the construction of the temple, the details of our temple, is to turn all of our minds, not just to the details of the construction plan, plan but also to point our minds to Christ and his holiness and how the building of this temple affects the way we live right now. So, you know, to ask the question, how does the building of a temple 3,000 years ago affect us today? How does it affect us today? That's, that's my job today. So if you want to know what you just read, uh, if you didn't get the mental picture, then let me show you. I found it. I got a picture. Now, this isn't, I wasn't there 3,000 years ago. I didn't actually take a Polaroid and upload it. But nevertheless, this is what it was like. Uh, like I said, it's about 30 yards by 10 yards. And that doesn't include the courtyard, which is ima- massive. It's about three different, on the sides, it's about three different levels. And that's for storage. But as you go into the door uh, right here, there's a room that takes you into another room. And, and there's, there's lots of details, which we read. Uh, but it takes you from the outside to the inner to the Holy of Holies. And it was an extravagant thing. And once you go inside, that's where all the gold is. All the things, everything's overlain with gold. Uh, but this is a picture of kind of what it would look like. Uh, a very large construction project, even for today. Even for today. Um, and God got the richest man in the world, the wisest man in the world, to build it 3,000 years ago. Um, and so it stood for about 400 years before it was destroyed which we talked about the kings, uh, the book of Kings deals with the decline of Israel. And so uh, today what we're going to look at is uh, in chapters five through nine is looking at what the building of the temple shows us. What does this building of the temple show us about God? So the first thing I want you to see here, the building of the temple shows us this. It confirms God's promises. If you go to chapter five and you look at verses one through six, it says this. Now, Hiram, king of, of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he had heard that they had anointed him king, uh, in place of his father, for Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, you know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord. So this is Solomon speaking to Hiram. He's going to drop some theology on Hiram for a few verses. And then he's going to have this major request. So here's the theology. You know that my, my father David could not build the house of the Lord because of the warfare which, uh, in which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put uh, under his soles of the feet. But now... The Lord has given me rest on every side. That's amazing. Uh, and there is neither adversary nor, nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said to my father David, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. We have referenced this multiple times. But this is the, the great Davidic promise given in Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 12-ish and following. Uh, and then here's the big, huge request in verse 6. Now, therefore, command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants, and I will pay for your servants such wages as you set for their... 
For you know that there's no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. And so here we have this confirmation of Yahweh's promise. All the way back to 2 Timothy, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel, not Timothy. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 and following. That great Davidic promise that comes from Yahweh to God saying, I'm going to build upon you a great name. And I choose to use you and I'm going to build your throne forever. And this promise had been given to David. Uh, And so what we see here is that God is confirming the promise that he gave to David. And so the first thing that we see in the building of the temple is that it confirms Yahweh's promise to them. And so the foundation of the temple, the foundation of this temple that's being built is not just an actual physical foundation of stone. Instead, the foundation is the promises of God being kept. God's promises that he makes are always kept by him, which means for us, whenever we see the the temple being showed being built shows that God keeps his promises. That means the promises that he's made for us in his scriptures are, are promises that he's going to keep for us as well. God's promises should drive, just like it drives their project. We know that God said this is going to happen. We trust God to keep his promises. And so we're going to go forward with this project as expensive as it might be, as difficult as it might be. We're going to go forward because God's a promise keeper. And in the same way, God's promise should, promises should also drive our project. He's given us a a construction project, if you will, a construction project of souls called the Great Commission. And he's promised us some things in this this, uh, project that he's given us. He's promised that he'll be with us. He'll never forsake us. He's promised that he's going to give us the Holy Spirit to to help us know when to say and understand and and guide us and prompt us whenever it's time to share the gospel. And so because he's a a promise keeper that he's given us uh, his Holy Spirit and he's promised that he'll never leave, lead us, leave us or forsake us, then the foundation of us fulfilling the Great Commission, our project that he's given us, is not really us. Just like the foundation of this temple was not uh, stones and, and brick and mortar, it was God keeping his promises. The pr- foundation for us keeping uh, the, God, the, the Great Commission is also God. God is the foundation of us being able to fulfill the great commission. And so since God kept these promises to them, we can trust that he will keep his promises to us as we fulfill the great project he's given us, namely the great commission. And so uh, whenever you get nervous about fulfilling the great commission, whenever you know that you're supposed to tell other people about Jesus, you can take heart and know that the foundation of you fulfilling it is not you, it's God. Because he keeps his promises. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He's given you um, the gift of Christ that he'll never leave you, forsake you. So the building of the, top, the, the, of the temple shows us that God keeps his promises. Another thing that we see is this. Um, the building of the temple confirms to us and it puts on display that God's lordship overall. Notice this. This is amazing. So we have Hiram uh, come up to, to Solomon we see it in verse 1. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants because he heard that he had anointed him king. And Hiram always loved David. This, this guy Hiram, he's a pagan. He's a pagan. So the second thing we see is this. It displays Yahweh's. And when you know, Yahweh, by the way, is just the Lord. It just means God. So I don't know if y'all know that. It's called the Tetragrammaton. You don't have to know that. But in, in, in the Old Testament Hebrew, the way that they wrote capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, 
was YHWH. And so anyway, there's lots of ways. To, it's the one that they didn't say. They said Adonai, but they didn't say Yahweh. We can say it. We're going to be okay. But that's what that is in case you didn't know. But the point that I'm trying to make here is this, is that it's going to put on display that God, Yahweh, is not just Lord over Israel. He's not just the king of Israel. He's the king over all the earth. And he still is. He's not just king of leader of Messiah of Christians, the church. He is that. But he's also the king of the world. And he doesn't have a limited time of his kingship. So kings back then and kings today, they have a limited time where they're king. They might be alive 70, 80 years, but he's Lord and king forever. And so here we're seeing that he is, he's putting on display that he's Lord over all. So let's start with the Bible verses that help us understand this. Uh, and I'll, I'll show you what I mean. Things like Psalm 24, 1, the, the earth is the Lord's. So not just uh, the promised land is the Lord's, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all those who dwell there within. So everything's God's. Psalm twenty two twenty eight. Kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over all the nations. So not just the nation of Israel, but everything. Psalm 72, 11. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Anytime God needs a king, a pagan king, to do anything for him, it's going to happen if he needs it. Another verse. Psalm, Isaiah 45, 23. By myself I have sworn from my mouth, by my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And so really, ultimately, Every knee is going to ultimately bow to God. So the point is this. If we read, um, go back to this text, and we read verse 434 straight into 5.1, then we start seeing something. Watch. 434. And people of all the nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard from his wisdom. And then 5.1, it starts with one of those specific kings. Hiram. He comes to say all those things. And then verse 5, and verse Seven, oh, six, I'm sorry. That's whenever Solomon makes this, this direct, like, hey, this is what I need for you to do. And as soon as what happens in verse 7, as soon as her, Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, this is amazing, right? This is amazing. Look what he says. Blessed be the Lord this day who has given David a wise son to be over his great people. Pagan Hiram saying this. And then it says, and Hiram said to Solomon, I've heard the message you have sent me. I'm ready to do all you desire. I'm ready to do all you desire. And so what we see here is when God wants to accomplish something, he's Lord over all. He's Lord over all. And so what God wants to see is that, um, and this writer wants us to see, is that even the pagan foreign king praises Solomon for his wisdom and the pagan foreign king is ready to do all that Solomon, namely really God, desires because Yahweh is Lord over all. And this foreshadows what's ultimately going to come is that Yahweh is just not king over Israel, but he's going to be king forever. So what does this mean then? What does it mean to say Yahweh's king, king over all because Hiram's ready to do whatever Solomon wants? What does it mean? On the face of it, it means this. Just for you ultimately right now in this room, it means this. That Jesus is Lord over your life. Every single aspect of it. He's Lord over your life. It also means more broadly that he's Lord over your neighbor's life. He's Lord over your, your pagan friend neighbor's life. And the one that needs to hear the good news, God can change his heart. He can make your neighbor, who seemingly is so anti-Jesus, uh, to say something like this, blessed be the Lord this day. 
He can certainly make your neighbor do that. He's Lord over that hard-hearted neighbor's heart. And ultimately, it means this, that he's going to win the whole thing. He's going to win the whole thing. So what it means, on the face of it right now, he's Lord over your life. It also means a little bit more broadly, he's Lord over your neighbor's life, that you really want to come to know Christ. And ultimately, that this, this trajectory of history, his story, God's story, is going somewhere And that's exactly where God wants it. And ultimately, he's going to win. As the great theologian David Crowder says, we're going to shout loud, loud till the walls come down. Loud till the walls come down, yeah, because we've already won. And you don't have a chance. Yeah, it's already done, and you don't have a chance. It's already done, and you don't have a chance because we have already won. We have already won. Now, I know I've quoted that before, but it's, it's absolutely true. That's the end. It's over. It's already been over. And so ultimately, when we see this, it means that God is going to win. And so we have great confidence, no matter what's happening in our current climate, around the world, or in our country, or in our city, no matter what's happening, God is still Lord over everything. And he's totally in control. That's the second thing. The next thing is that it exhibits Yahweh's wisdom. And the Lord gave, verse 12, and the Lord gave Solomon wisdom. So, Solomon's wisdom comes from the Lord. And so it's going to put on display Yahweh's wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon and the two of them made a treaty. And then watch this. As soon as he says something about Solomon's wisdom, the writer wants to go straight into the workforce. And how is it going to happen? Watch this. King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all of Israel in the draft numbered 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 men a month in shifts, and they would be a month in Lebanon and two at home. And Adonai was in charge of the draft. And Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country. Besides Solomon, 3,300 chief officers who were over the work. So 3,300 people oversee the 70 and 80,000 who had charge of the people who carried the work. And the king's command, they cored out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. And we know that that wasn't done in the temple because they didn't want the noise in the temple. They did it and they brought them. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the men of Gebal did the cutting. Gebel, Gebel, who knows? Did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. That's a lot of detailed information. Um, why, why does all this matter? What we're seeing here is the writer wants us to see in verse 12, Solomon's gift of wisdom was from God. And he reiterates that to us in verse 12, right before the work assignments are being discussed. Because we can read the work assignments and be like, man, that's a lot of people and you're away from your family for a month. That doesn't seem fair. There's a draft. How come all this is happening? What's going on? And so before we think of the work schedule or the workload or all these things, labor intense things are being done by a crazy king, Solomon, who's just pushing to get his pet project done. We need to realize that in verse 12, the writer wants us to see the Lord gave Solomon wisdom and Solomon created the work schedule. So ultimately, this work schedule is from God. So even the details of how and who builds this temple, it shows us the wisdom of God. And you could just say, well, why does that matter? Why does that matter? Well, these people that were doing it, they had certain, a certain set of skills they, that the Lord had given them. They had giftings that God had given them, right? And here, here's why it matters is this. Um, churches are made up of people. And it's not the building. They're made up of people. And every one of you has a gift from God. Every one of you has been given gifts from God. And he wants you to use the gift that you have. In this church, 
to edify the saints of this church. And it's not an accident. Instead, it's the Lord's wisdom to give you the gift that he has. And so not using your gift for the edification of the church. This church, especially because this is where you go. This is where you remember. Is in essence saying, no thanks God. I don't like this gift. And so I don't want to use it. Or maybe even worse, uh, I would have known better. And I would have chosen a different gift for myself. Something that's more prominent or something that's more fun. I don't think my gift is fun. And that's precisely the point. We would have chose differently because we're not God. But God in his infinite wisdom has put you here. He has given you these specific gifts, these specific tasks, these lives to interact with, this church to be inside of, this people to get to do life with, this city to have a heart for, these neighbors to love and care for. And so, since that's the case, we shouldn't miss the wonder of where he's placed you um, and the reason why he's placed you by pining for the quote-unquote greener grass on the other side. You're going to miss exactly where he's placed you and this is where he wants you to be. And so, it's his wisdom that's put you here and this place with these people and this city and these neighbors. It's his ultimate wisdom that's put you here. And if you live, and I live, uh, a life of relative insignificance uh, besides in this church for our entire days and that no one ever knows who we are past our own grandkids, that's okay. That's okay because that's where the Lord has placed you. And the best thing we can do is serve him by serving this church well and um, using our gifts for the edification of this church for the glory of God. And so this exhibits for us God's wisdom and specifically for us the wisdom that he's given you and your gifts to use here. Now, as we go into verse 6, it's going to also describe to us Yahweh's magnificence. Now, I read this particular part already. So the building of the temple shows us Yahweh's magnificence. Uh, And so before we talk about what I read, I read, if you weren't here when I I read, I read uh, the details of the outer Uh, construction plans and the inner construction plans and the furnishing of the temple. Very, very detailed. Something that most of us would just kind of breeze through. Um, But before we do that, I want to make sure we get the gospel chronology of verse verse 1 because uh, I know all of you are amazing readers. You are are in tune with what God is doing. And so you you see it right away in verse 1. But I just want to rehearse it with us all so that we can see the amazing gospel chronology happening here. It's not just a throwaway verse in verse 1. It's very intentional. Watch this. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, here it is, he began to build the house of the Lord. Now, I'm just like you. I read that and I'm like, okay, 480 years. But the commentaries really help, right? But this is where it's amazing. There's gospel chronology here, as in good news in the chronology. Good news of Jesus in the chronology. How? I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you. Here's how. So this verse, 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, is intentionally styled and written like another verse where a big thing of, uh, in Israel's life is happening. So in Exodus chapter 12, verse 40 and 41, I have it right here. You can just listen. It reads very similarly. Listen. 
The time that the people had lived in Egypt was 430 years. So you know the story of Israel. Right when they finally leave bondage and they finally are free from all of Pharaoh. That time that people lived in Israel, Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of the 430 years, on that very day, the host of the Lord that went out from Egypt. And there's a significant day showing that there was an end of bondage and now they have been given the gift of freedom. Similarly, listen to this again. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Zib, in the second month, it wasn't that they were now um, leaving the bondage. It is he began to build the house of the Lord. And so two huge mile markers with these 430 and 480 years are being shown to us. Exodus 12 at the end of 430 years marks the end of bondage and the gift of freedom. 1 Kings 6.1, the end of 480 years marks the end of wandering. And now with the temple, the gift of rest. Notice the good news gospel language. That they are end of bondage, the gift of freedom. The end of wandering, the gift of rest. Let's take them one by one. The end of bondage, the gift of freedom from Exodus 12. Romans 6, the gospel of Jesus points us to the end of bondage and the gift of freedom. It says this, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. We are no longer under bondage of sin anymore because of Christ. But now we've been given the gift of freedom in Christ. It says it this way. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him, over Christ. So therefore the same thing's true for us. He never has dominion over us. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. And so here, this is pointing us to the fact in gospel chronology that we all also now in Christ have the end of bondage to sin and now the gift of freedom that sin has, no longer has any rule or reign over us. That's Exodus 12, but also 1 Kings 6. It's the end of wandering and the gift of rest. Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you Rest. I knew you knew it. I'll I'll say it. It's okay. it um, It is just me talking. So take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The end of wandering, trying to find life, trying to find rest is over. Just like it was for them. And now they've been given this temple to enjoy the presence of the Lord and finally have final rest. And the same thing for us with Christ. Once we come to know Christ and we confess our sins, the cross invites us in to enjoy the presence of God and finally have rest. And so this huge gospel chronology is is right there in verse 6. And then it goes into verses 2 through 10, the exterior, 15 through 30, the interior, 31 through 35, the entrances, 36, the courtyard. And we can see, as I've read, that there's a lot of extravagance when it describes the temple. Um, I just went with her ladyship this past week, that's my wife, uh, to see Downton Abbey and four other ladies in the church. So that's right, me and five ladies in the church, just me, no guys, went to see Downton Abbey. That's okay, husbands, that didn't go. I understand. I was told you were going to be there, but nevertheless, I got there and it was me and five ladies, but nevertheless. So my point is this, we went and saw Downton Abbey, and if you're familiar with this story, it's a story of great extravagance, right? And, and they have little stories on the inside of it. But nevertheless, we see it and we see great extravagance. And when we see great extravagance like that, we're like, wow, 
that's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. Like, how do they have so much money to do all that stuff? And when we see that great extravagance, we can kind of um, push our minds back to reading stuff like this. And we're like, oh, man, there's a lot of extravagance here. Um, how come there's so much extravagance here, too? Is it bad? Is it bad here? Like, it feels bad in those kind of Downton Abbey aristocratic kind of things. When you go to uh, Asheville and you see that big house, and you're like, oh, man, what's it called? Biltmore. And you're like... That feels icky as a Christian to spend that much money on your big house. Is it supposed to feel icky when we think about this massive temple? Why? Why would we feel that way? Let's, let's make sure we understand. Well, I read 1 Kings 6 on purpose to make sure we saw the writer of 1 Kings chapter 6 has no negative tones about the extravagance used to build the temple. Nothing. He doesn't hint towards at all that it feels too extravagant. And so we need to reject the impulse to say this is a waste of resources and that it could be used in a better way. If it's something else, maybe. But when we're talking about the temple of the Lord, no. Let's talk about why. Dale Davis says it this way. Um, I suggest that the splendor of the temple is meant to reflect the splendor of Israel's God. That the temple's gold points to Yahweh's glory. It was a world in which kings built or refurbished lavish temples as appropriate tributes to their gods and goddesses. In such a world, why should Yahweh look like a discount store deity with some government loan house? If there is an indulgence that is sinful, there is an extravagance that is also godly. And perhaps the message of the temple gold, where it's everywhere, is that nothing cheap should be offered to Yahweh, but only what is a tribute commensurate with his splendor, whether, for example, in formal worship, biblical scholarship, or even for you and I in our daily work of life. So the great expense of the temple points us to the holiness of God. The writer has no qualms about it being very expensive. God got the most, got the richest guy in the world to build it because he could afford it. So the fact that it's so inlaid with gold and so extravagant just shows us just how holy God is. Not only that, and I would just couple it with the, with the cross. If the temple was so expensive to build, to build, how much more then is the expense of the son of God on the cross? It should help us see just how infinitely expensive it would be for the son of God to die on the cross for us so that we can have eternal life. And so we should not feel weird or nervous or shy away from the description of first Kings chapter six about the extravagance used to build a temple for God, uh, because it is the place where the presence of God dwelt with his people. Now it shows us, um, as I said, Yahweh's magnificence. That's what it shows us. It shows us just how amazing our God is. Now, as I read chapter 6, you might have noticed that I skipped 11 through 13. You might not have noticed, but maybe you did. Uh, because this is, this is an interesting little insert. So let's go ahead and put it up. It shows us Yahweh's priority, number 5, and Solomon's heart. Uh, right in the middle of this large description of the temple, it has this little insert. Uh, it's interesting. It's didactic in nature. It teaches Look what it says in verse 11. As he's in the middle of the description, it says, Now, the word of the Lord, God speaks to Solomon in the middle of this. The word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all the commandments um, and walk in them, 
Then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel. And I will not forsake my people, Israel. And so tucked right in the middle of the large description of the temple, the Lord comes and speaks to Solomon in verse 11 with uh, an if-then um, showing God's priority of how he wants the king to follow him so that the people will. And it also is going to help us, help us understand Solomon's heart some. So verse 11 through 13 show up on purpose. It's not an accident that the writer put it there. Some Deuteronomic figure didn't come back later and decide to add that in there and say, oh, this is a great place to add a little word from God in the middle of the temple. No, it happened just like this. It reminds the readers that... Uh, that the personal royal or king's obedience with Yah- to Yahweh's commands are absolutely necessary for all of Israel to be able to enjoy all the blessings of the temple. Solomon, your leadership is important. Your following of my commands is important. In order for everybody in Israel to enjoy the blessings of the temple, you need to be the kind of king that follows his command. This word comes to Solomon and reminds him, apart from God's word, this is just another construction project. That's all it is. But you need to follow God's word. Tony Morita says it this way. If Israel doesn't follow God's word, then they won't enjoy all the benefits of the temple. Uh, God says that Solomon will experience God's blessing if he obeys the commands. These blessings include an everlasting dynasty into the presence of God. So no doubt, this is a specific promise made to a specific people, God of Israel and to Solomon. Solomon, so it's not like the exact same promise he gives to us. I agree. But principally, I could say that there's similarities and how uh, we can look at this and say, therefore, it applies to us. Um, If we rebel too hard against the commands that the Lord gives us and claim legalism or this is too much law, then uh, we also miss out on the blessings of God. Ralph Davis says it this way. I know some Christians have an allergic reaction when they're told that they are to subject themselves to Yahweh's moral law in Exodus chapter 20. This, they fear, is legalism and an effort at salvation by works. But that fear misunderstands the function of the Ten Commandments. The law comes in the context of grace. Yahweh lays down the pattern in the book of of Exodus. He delivers his people... In Exodus chapters 1 through 15. Then he demands chapter, in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. He works redemption before he sets down the requirements. He first sets Israel free and then tells them how that freedom is now to be enjoyed and maintained. Therefore, glad obedience to Yahweh's moral law is simply our logical act of worship. Now, if we get it backwards, you're done. The gospel does not get it backwards. The gospel sets us free in Christ. And then... The law is not to be kept for righteous living. The law is to be kept out of glad obedience to worship to God. And so in the same way, principally, we can see that if we're in Christ, he does want us to obey his commands because that's where the blessings of God lie for us in life. He wants us to have Solomon's heart. He wants Solomon to obey and he wants the same for us. Israel is told to live faithfully under this great covenant that he's given them so that they can enjoy the promises of God and the presence of God. But as we see, they won't. But let's look at this through the gospel because this is where it's amazing. He told Solomon, if then, these these if then propositions to the covenant, um, and he didn't keep it. But here's the good news. You gotta hear the bad news to hear the good news. Neither would have you and neither would have I. 
But we have a king who did keep it for us. The great King Jesus kept these things for us. Romans chapter 8, verse 3 and 4. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be kept and fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In other words, Jesus has, our King Jesus has kept the law perfectly. What he told Solomon to do, King Jesus has done for us. And so we don't have to, like Solomon, try to keep it to have a right standing with God. King Jesus did it for us. And now we actually receive these promised benefits that is given to King Solomon in a different way, of course. But nevertheless, to us, we enjoy the promises and the presence of God. Not in the same way, but nevertheless, we do enjoy them. Given to us all because Christ kept the law faithfully. Jesus lived faithfully under the covenant for us. And now we enjoy God's promises and God's presence. So it's not your job. King Jesus has done it, and that's the good news. Because of Jesus, um, we can be forgiven for our law breaking, and we have the power to obey now, which is what God has commanded us to do. So now we are glad obeyers. That's not a word, but I made it up. We are glad, I don't think it is. God, at least it turned out red when I typed it. We are glad obeyers of God's moral law and worshipers of King Jesus because we've been forgiven by Jesus because he lived it for us perfectly. And so that shows us Yahweh's priority in Solomon's heart and in our lives that we are to live as lovers of the gospel because our King Jesus actually did this for us. King Jesus kept the covenant for us. Now, I don't have a ton of time to go through seven, so I'm just going to give you the big picture here. Um, It demonstrates the power and the promises of Yahweh. Building the temple demonstrates the power and the promises of Yahweh. I'm going to zoom in on one verse, and I would just invite you to read the rest of chapter 7. I wish I could do it verse by verse, um, but I can't. So uh, go back to that picture real fast. I know this wasn't planned. Sorry. So you see these big, tower, these big columns right here, these brown t- columns? They actually have names. All right, you can go back to number whatever we were, set, six. Um, verse 21. He set up the pillars at the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the south and called its name Jachin. And he set up the pillar on the north and called its name Boaz. And on the tops of these pillars were lily work. Thus the work of the pillars were finished. They were named Jachin, which means Yahweh will establish or may Yahweh establish. In other words, it's pointing to the Davidic promise made in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12 and following, that Yahweh's throne is going to be established forever. So it's establishing, one of those columns is establishing God is a promise keeper and he keeps his promises. So the first thing we see, it demonstrates the promises of God. The other one is named Boaz from Ruth. Uh, and it says, and this, Boaz means in Yahweh's strength or by Yahweh, the king is mighty. And the name is implying that we have a dependence upon the king of God. It's displaying for us the power of Yahweh to do everything. So chapter 7, it does a lot. But nevertheless, I think you can zoom in on 21. And you can see the building of the temple shows us the power and the promises of Yahweh. Chapter 8. I know that's a lot in chapter 7. There's a lot. But nevertheless... That's the way you have to do it when you do surveys. So chapter 8, it shows us this. It it presents Yahweh's desire for us to pray. Now the last two weeks we've talked about prayer. And so I feel okay-ish about zooming through chapter 8. Not great. But nevertheless, in verse 
in chapter 8, this is where the ark is brought in. And you can see that Solomon blesses the Lord. Solomon prays this great prayer of dedication. Um, and then there's a benediction. So I would please invite you to read chapter 8. It's the great Salamic prayer, Salamanat prayer, however you say that. But nevertheless, it shows us this. It presents Yahweh's desire for us to pray. God deeply desires for us to pray. There's a great party because the, the temple has been built. And what does Solomon feel compelled to make sure he leads all of Israel's people to do? Pray. Pray. Thank the Lord. And so it, it occurs celebrating and dedicating the temple. And Solomon pours out his heart before God in this theologically rich prayer. And he blesses the Lord and he prays for justice and rescue and provision and deliverance and outsiders. Uh, he prays for them. He prays for victory. He prays for restoration, etc. And so chapter 8 shows us that Yahweh does deeply desires for us to pray. Which brings us to the last one in chapter 9. In chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, God shows up and has uh, another time where he speaks to Solomon. You can see it in verse 1 and 2. As Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and and all that Solomon desired to build, here it is. The Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him in Gibeon. If you remember, he had done that in chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. And so he appears to him a second time. And in this particular time, verses 3 through 9 is where where God speaks. And it's kind of a... uh, It's kind of a three-pronged message. Uh, The outline of God's words is, in verse 3, he's going to tell him, Solomon, you have favor. In verse 4 and 5, he's going to give him some assurance. And then verse 6 through 9, the larger part, he's going to warn him. He's going to warn him in verses 6 through 9. So you can see this. In verse 3, is the favor. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which we talked about in chapter 8, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever, my eyes and my heart. By the way, just as a side note, this my heart, this is the only time in First Kings, the word heart's written all over First and Second Kings. And this is the only time in First and Second Kings that God's heart is spoken of. No other place. And also, by the way, you probably know the Second Chronicles 7, if my people who are called by my name, but will humble themselves. Um, that's this right here. We are in the the same chronological time period of Second Chronicles 7. So this is, this is it right here. Back to the text. So uh, here we see that you, you have favor. You have my eyes and my heart will be there for all time. That's an amazing piece of favor that God says I have for you. Also, verse 4. 4 and 5 is going to say, here's some assurances. Uh, you have favor and here's some assurances. And as for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according all that I have commanded you. Now, you know David's life, right? You know David's life. It was a mess. But on the whole, he repented and he was a man after God's own heart. And this is what God, he's not demanding perfection from, either, from us either. You're a mess. I'm a mess. We're all a mess. Praise Jesus that we're forgiven and we walk by the power of the Spirit. Nevertheless, here we are. So, Walk like David did and keeping my statutes and rules. Then I will establish your, ro- your royal throne forever as I promised David your father saying, you shall not like a man on the throne of Israel. There will always be. So here's, here's the assurances, the if then. But then here's the warnings in verses 6 through 9. But this is going to happen, by the way, because Solomon is not going to do it. This is going to happen. So God told him it would happen if you don't do this and they don't do it and therefore this happens. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go to serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. 
And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. And this happens. This happens. So God clearly is warning Solomon. And we also need to understand the warnings. What it points us to is, we are there, yeah, expresses us the urgent need for faithfulness. There's an urgent need for Solomon and the people of Israel to understand they need to be faithful or these disasters come. And it puts on display for us that in Christ, we're totally forgiven of all of our sin, but we still need to be faithful and obedient to the things of God. Because it's an act of worship for us. God's faithful to us. And therefore we should be faithful as well. So that our lives don't end up like the temple. In ruin. So let's conclude this way. I want to conclude with a gospel proclamation. Of this particular text from Tony Merida. He says it this way. Everyone will worship something or someone. What or whom do you worship? Let us remember that someone greater than Solomon is here. Jesus has come to show us the glory of God. He never sinned or fell short of the glory of God. He lived a perfectly righteous life and died a substitutionary death. That means he substituted himself for you and me. He conquered the grave and and now we need to submit our lives to this king. Don't give your heart to another lover. Instead, see in Christ all that you need. In him there is freedom, rest, joy, power for holiness, and access to God in prayer. Let his peace rule your heart. Look to the Savior King temple who outshines all the beauties of this world. Behold the light of the knowledge of the glory and the face of Jesus Christ with the eyes of faith that can be changed by the Spirit of God. Look to Christ, our, as he says, Savior King temple. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this beautiful, long kind of description of what the temple was being built. And I pray, Lord, that all of us have had our hearts pushed towards Jesus. All of our affections have been put on Christ for the, the gospel-rich texts that we've looked at this morning. And how they all point us to our only hope is in Christ dying on the cross for us to forgive us of all of our sin. That we are incapable of righteousness. And yet, because Christ lived the perfect life, righteousness has now been imputed to us. And all we know is favor. All we know is forgiveness. What an amazing thought. Help us all live lives of gratitude because of this. You are infinitely holy and infinitely worthy of our lives. If there's anything the temple shows us, it's that. Help us live in light of that each day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.